This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. You both have to swipe right, Josh, to continue with your terrible <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> well, I know this seems like a big red flag and bad, but it'll probably get better. It never gets better. It never gets better. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we offer some guidance on choosing the right thesis advisor for you. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 182. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy fall, Dan. It's happening. Uh, things finally cooled off around here. We are currently recording. Uh, Hurricane Ian is making its way up the coast, I think. We're thinking about everybody in Florida. Hopefully, if you're there, you were managed to stay safe or get out. But um, I think it's going to make a left turn out of the Atlantic and come back toward North Carolina. So I expect to see some of it this weekend. Yeah, it's supposed to come our way later this weekend, too. And also, uh, all of our listeners, like you said, Dan, who are in the southeast and in the the Puerto Rican and Caribbean areas, too. Hopefully, uh, you all are back where you are listening to podcasts again, and that's what you've got to do. So, If you have internet, things are going better. That's important. (laughs) That's always true. Uh, Dan, we have a listener beer. I think it's been a while since we have a listener who has uh, sent us a beer. This beer is from one of our longtime Patreon patrons from Terry. Oh, thank you so much, Terry. Now, this this can really speaks to me, Josh. This is the Technical Ecstasy Czech-style Pilsner uh, from Second Shift Brewing, and it's got this adorable little picture of a robot hugging itself. I assume this is how the robots uh, murder us all. They convince us that they're cute and cuddly, and actually they're <laughs> murder that machines. That they feel. That's exactly right. Adorable little robot. I think its antenna is making a little heart shape. Tell us about a Czech Pilsner and why Terry thought we should try this. Well, I do have to say this. Terry did uh, let me know, along with sending the beer, that she's a big fan of the show, enjoys our beer segments, but is not a beer drinker herself. Oh, interesting. This could go either way then, Josh. This could be amazing or be terrible. That's right. So I think a big part of the beers that we got were based on how cool the can looked. Nailed it. Nailed it. Success so far. Yeah, Dan, I don't think we've had a lot of Pilsners on the show, so I'm actually excited that we get to try this today. So as you mentioned, this is a Czech-style Pilsner, so of course I looked up, well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, Yeah, Dan, so it turns out Pilsners originate from the Czech Republic, and actually it's baked into the word Pilsner. So Pilsner means from Pilsen in Czech. It all makes sense. This is the etymology puzzle coming back to haunt us. That's a, that's a deep cut for people that have been listening for the last five, six years. That's right. So Pilsner is inherently a, a Czech-style beer. So Czech Pilsner is really, in some ways, redundant. Um, but they, they have a similar style. So Czech-style Pilsners, or Pilsners as we now call them, are moderately tinted beers with a pale yellow color. They tend to be low to medium on the hop profile tend to be slightly sweet with some toasted biscuit and bready aromas and usually moderate to low carbonation. Uh, We tend to think of them, well, I would always tend to think of them as a quote-unquote lighter beer, 
compared to like the IPAs or the big stouts that we might drink? Yeah, I mean, you say that I'm I'm tasting this and it does have a hot profile. There is a bitterness to it. And I was surprised. I expected it to taste like water and that's not what I'm getting. Yeah. And you know, Dan, I think there's a reason why we might have had these expectations that maybe are incorrect. Because um, if I know you, Dan, you like me, if you see a Pilsner on the board at your local brewery, how often do you order that beer? I avoid it like the plague. There's no chance that I will ever order a Pilsner out. Exactly. I'm the same way, but I think this might be why, because this beer is actually pretty good. I want to just cut to the yeah. It is. It is very to, nice. Cut to the chase here. Not just because it was a gift. It all actually tastes good. <laughs> it, it does. Um, but as I was researching this, if you look at other styles of pilsners, uh, there are German pilsners, which are very similar in profile to the Czech pilsners. Uh, those are often just called pils to distinguish them, I guess, from being from Pilsen. Uh, but then there are these American-style pilsners that are often called trash. My term. <laughs> yeah, that's, My term. That's the other name. And so these American pilsners, uh, I found them described as significantly less flavor, hops, and bitterness than traditional European pilsners. And these would be your Anheuser-Busch, your Coors, you know, these okay, hang sort on. of American-style mass-market beers. What, when we had our Miller High Life, what style is that? That's champagne, I know. <laughs> I don't know, Dan. Maybe that's a style all, all, all to Maybe itself. No, it has no style? <laughs> Maybe so. But that's probably what you think, Dan, why you avoid those beers. Because in your mind, you're probably linking this this Czech-style Pilsner at the microbrewery to your experience with these American-style mainstream lighter beers that have similar characteristics to a Pilsner, but are actually very different. I mean, I, I'm glad you're you're breaking my biases, Josh, and I appreciate that because next time I go out, I will look for a non-American Pilsner and see if I like it because I do like this. I do too. This is why I listen to the show, Josh. I always <laughs> learn something. Well, we hope you did too, and we we thank Terry for this delicious beer. Absolutely. We also want to thank Promega. Uh, if you're doing live cell research, you know that it's so important for understanding in vivo mechanisms and conditions. But cell line authentication is tough, and it's a key to success and reproducibility in science. If you want to learn all about proper cell culture techniques, including information about 2D and 3D culture systems, just go to promega.com slash hellocells. Also, Dan, we have a new Patreon patron. Want to give a special thanks to Gaziza. Thank you so much, and we've already chatted in the Slack channel. So uh, thank you so much, and we'll continue the conversation on that side. All right, Dan, we have a great listener question that we're going to discuss today, so let's move on to that. Josh, the question came from Megan, who's a first-year PhD student. She writes, Hi, Dr. Hall. You may have already recorded a podcast on this topic, but I wanted to suggest doing one on choosing a lab slash mentor during rotations. I'm starting my IGP rotations in October, and I'm feeling nervous about making a wise choice. Loving the podcast. And that, again, was for Megan. Uh, thanks, Megan. And that's the first time I've been called Dr. Hall since the day after I defended my PhD thesis. You don't put that on all your hotel reservations? I always hope that it's going <laughs> to upgrade me to something and it never does. Uh, actually, I do that sometimes. And the only time that I don't do that is when I'm flying because I don't want anyone to get confused and think I'm a real doctor. Is there a doctor on the plane? 
Well, it looks like seat 59A. Like, nope, nope, not that kind of doctor. If the person has tularemia, you may be able to help. I might be able to help. Yeah, Dan, this is a great, Megan, thanks for, for writing in this question. This is a very timely question because it is certainly the season that many first-year PhD students, especially those in the biomedical sciences, are doing their lab rotations and they're trying to figure out what lab they're going to join for their thesis. And as an aside, probably we should mention to all of our listeners that Megan mentioned this term rotations. In the United States, lots of biomedical PhD programs are structured so that students don't apply directly to work with specific faculty advisors, but instead they apply to the program itself and then do a series of lab rotations during their first year of grad school before they ultimately choose which lab to join for their thesis work. It's kind of like a micro-internship. Yeah, you could definitely think of it that way, or you know, you could think of it as uh, speed dating. You could, Josh. <laughs> That's more worrying implications, but I'll, I'll go with you on this one. Uh, you know, and these rotations, they tend to last from six weeks to 10 weeks. So they're not, I guess they're not super speedy, but... Nor are they dating. Is, Technically, they are also not dating. <laughs> they should not be. They should not be, but that's another episode. You know, you get to take your car out for the test drive before you buy it, right? Fair. Uh, now, personally, and, and I, I'm going to say, Dan, these, this is the type of program that you and I both came through, where we did lab rotations before choosing a lab. I think there's some big advantages to this format. And I actually think it's possible some grad programs outside of biomedical uh, programs may have started approaching advisor selection this way as well. I would love to hear from listeners if you're part of a program in the sciences or not that's beyond the biomedical sciences that have started doing some sort of rotation process as a way to select thesis advisors. I'd love to know about that. So let us know. But I think, Dan, we've talked many times on the show about the importance of choosing the right advisor, but that can be pretty difficult to do when you have so little information. Uh, maybe you've just looked on a website, you've had a couple email exchanges, maybe a Zoom meeting, best case scenario, but it is totally possible someone could seem super great on a 30-minute Zoom meeting, but that doesn't give you a whole lot of insight into what it's like to work closely with them day in and day out, or beyond that, What's it like to work in their lab? What's the culture? What's the lab environment like? I can be very charming in a 15-minute meeting, Josh, but as you learned over probably 15 years of friendship, I'm a nightmare, actually, (laughs) as a human being. So, yeah, anybody can behave for a Zoom call. And I think what you're referring to is you get into your fifth year of your PhD program, your research advisor may not be the person you thought they were, and you may not be the person they thought you were. So it's you're using very limited information in making that choice. That's right, Dan. If if we, I could only take in your friendship out for a test drive for maybe six to eight weeks. Exactly. No, you, know, you were locked in. <laughs> locked in. You've had plenty of chances to abandon ship, Josh. This is on you That's now. That's true. Plenty, plenty of chances. Yeah, I want to say off the bat, uh, and this is important and I think missed by grad students doing rotations, Dan, you alluded to this, that this rotation process, this lab selection process is a two-way street. So you are collecting information that you're ultimately going to use to choose who you want to work with. But like you alluded to, Dan, the advisors are also collecting info to decide if they want to extend that offer for you to join. It's not a foregone conclusion that, oh, well, the process is rotating three labs and then I pick one at the end. Well, also the advisor has to 
um, assess how that rotation went and decide if they want to to offer you a spot um, in the lab. You, you both have to swipe right, Josh, to continue with your terrible <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should kill that metaphor completely now. Oh, no, uh, it's going to come uh, back now. For- yeah, so I think what you're really hoping to gain at the end of this rotation process is that you've obviously been really engaged, you've gone to these three labs, things have gone well, and so you've got three advisors who are just clamoring to have you join their group. And then it's up to you to decide which one is the best fit for you. And we're not going to spend much time, actually, we're not going to spend any time talking about the things that you can do to make sure you are successful in the lab. I think we probably did an episode on that at some point. You know, Dan, I do want to do a quick shout out to an episode we actually reposted. This was an older episode. Um, and a couple of weeks, a few weeks back, we reposted this. This was episode 119, 10 Tips to Crush Your First Semester. So this provides some additional information beyond the choosing a lab part. That And I went back to listen to this. Um, this was a really fun episode to listen to. Um, first, it took me back to days pre-pandemic when we were... Yeah. Time warp. (laughs) Carefree recording our podcast. But I think there's some really good advice in this episode for additional ways you can make the most out of your first year of grad school. So really recommend if you go back in the podcast feed, we reposted just a couple episodes ago, uh, episode 119. Um, Take a listen to that. And I'm not going to go through all of those items, but the very last tip of those 10 tips that we that we listed was what I really want to go into depth on today. And I think this gets at Megan's question and that is seek mentors, not projects. And I think this is where we started to scratch the surface on what to think about and how to approach actually choosing a lab to join and an advisor to pair with for your thesis. I want to hop in here, Josh, because the person who is a humanities PhD student Uh, or an applicant or somebody aspiring to do a PhD in some other non-biomedical field may be saying, I'm going to skip this, don't care, not doing rotations. But I think what we're going to talk about is valuable, no matter what PhD program you're going into, the notion of uh, falling in love with a particular type of research and then joining a research group with a person, uh, an advisor that is not a mentor is also hazardous if you're studying classical literature, right? So I think what we're talking about here is uh, generally good advice, and it's a little bit counterintuitive advice. And so stick with us to the end. I think you're going to get something out of it, even if you're not uh, a physiology student. I think that's true, Dan. And I'm glad you said that. And I would extend that to uh, postdocs as well. Or if you're someone who's thinking about looking for a postdoc lab, I think you might find some useful advice here. All right. So... Let's say you're in the position of doing lab rotations and now you're trying to figure out, you know, what should I be, what's my mindset or how do I even approach, actually, let's back up, Dan. How do I even approach thinking about what labs to rotate in? Because yeah. honestly, I think the, ro- the that was rotation a hard choice. process is a very hard choice. This is really the one time in your career that you get to do this, <laughs> that you get to actually try out advisors for a few weeks before you commit so I think you want to make the most out of those decisions of which of those three advisors to rotate with. And, you know, some programs might restrict you to only faculty who are in your department or in a specific department. So maybe you're not going to have lots of options to who to rotate with. But if you're in a big umbrella program like we were, Dan, you might have no restrictions at all. I mean, you might have literally hundreds of faculty to choose from. And that 
could be good because choice is good, but sometimes too much choice can be actually a paralyzing thing. Yeah, I think we probably had access to hundreds of research advisors. It was the entire school of medicine. Plus, there was a there's a biology school that is more um, basic biology. But what I mean is natural biology, not medicine mm-hmm. applied. Um, we probably could have. I don't. Maybe we couldn't have done rotations in places like uh, public health. Uh, computer science, and I don't know if we had access to those. Probably not, but through collaborations, we certainly could have. Yeah, certainly. I know the the PhD program that that I was affiliated with for a long time. We had it was literally three hundred faculty you could choose okay, from. So and you like know you the said, numbers. Dance. Yeah, some were in, like you said, a school of medicine. Some were in the College of Arts and Sciences. Some were in the dental school. Some were in the pharmacy school. Some were in math. You're absolutely right. In chemistry. And so, so choose three out of three hundred. <laughs> it's a hard decision. Exactly. Isn't there even a psychological term for that? Where uh, more choice actually is more stressful. Like, have you ever tried to buy Oreos lately, Dan? You know how there used to be like one kind, That's and right. now or, or you Cheerios, can get Hydrox. You know? <laughs> there used to be one kind, and now you go to the grocery store aisle, and there's like, you know, pumpkin spice and birthday cake and reverse chocolate vanilla and all this stuff. It's like, ah, I don't even know. I forget it. I'm going to just do something else. I think there are different types of students who, who come in with different goals. And some students come into grad school already having a really good idea of the type of research they want to do. Uh, whereas others maybe only had one or two experiences that were largely driven by opportunities available to them um, during undergrad. So maybe they took the research opportunity that was in front of them and not necessarily, oh, I thought long and hard about the type of science I wanted to do. And that's the lab I chose as an undergrad. I mean, that makes total sense. My first research job as an undergrad was in a plant cell biology lab because I happened to be in the College of Agriculture. And that was (laughs) what you did. Uh, And it was not until my second rotation, you know, second year or second attempt that I found there was a college of medicine and I could do other types of research. So yeah, I I think you definitely, as an undergrad, you take what you can get and you may maybe haven't thought a lot about it. Absolutely. And so for students like you, Dan, or students who, who feel that way, these rotations in the first year of your PhD program might be the first time you've ever had a choice um, and had a chance to try out these cool topics. Maybe you'd read about, you know, whether it's neuroscience or immunology or, or whatever it is. So I think the first thing you might do and how you might approach this is start with some faculty websites and maybe from there pull up a recent paper or two. And I think at this point, you're really just paying attention to, you're kind of doing these quick skims because you maybe you're going through lots of different faculty and flag ones that you kind of, you get done reading and you feel like, oh, well, that sounds really cool. I'd like to learn more about that. Now, obviously, how something sounds on a website is just the tip of an iceberg. So, based on what you discover, then that's where you move to the next step is reach out and schedule a meeting with that advisor. And this doesn't have to be a super fancy, you know, you don't need a, a fancy printed uh, invitation for a meeting, but just a simple email um, saying, hey, I'm a first year grad student. I'm in the process of scheduling my rotations. I'm interested. I took a look at your, I was reading about your research or I was maybe reading your most recent paper. I'm possibly interested in thinking more about this topic. Could we meet and talk a little bit more about the possibility of me doing a rotation? I think that's really all, all you need to do. Are they, is it possible at this point for the advisor to say, sorry, I'm not taking anybody and I don't even want to talk to you? 
or will they often take the meeting and chat with you and kind of suss out what's going on before they decide? How does that usually work? I think it could be both. So what I would hope would happen, and I think what, what often happens, is it is true some advisors for a variety of reasons are just not taking a graduate student that year. You should be free to them in that moment, right? As a rotation student, you're not costing them money. Typically. But you are costing them time. Typically. And and actually, this is something that I would hope. So a graduate... so. A, an advisor who is not planning to take a graduate student that year, maybe they're, you know, they're in between grants or they just took three first year students the last year. And so they feel like they're kind of maxed out on their mentorship ability. Hopefully if that's the case for them, they would be upfront about that. You actually want them to be upfront about that. But I mean, the truth is there will be other advisors who they will use that initial meeting for them to kind of figure out, you know, like, oh, okay, this seem, this student seems seems serious. They seem really interested in what we're doing. So, yeah, I'll take that meeting and then kind of see see how it goes. And then others may say, yeah, I'm really excited to have more people in my lab. Please, yes, let's meet. How's five minutes from now? You know, it just depends on the advisor and the situation they're in currently. We need to schedule an episode for the other side of this equation, Josh, which is marketing for PIs. Like, how do you attract students to your research, uh, make it sound interesting, make it accessible on a website? Uh, I, I certainly have memories of different faculty members' websites and how non-existent they were or how compelling and exciting they were. And there's probably a skill set there. Yeah, I've always had this hypothesis that the faculty who have the best websites with the most clear information are the ones who get the most rotation students. Absolutely. Because that's where people start, right? Um, I also had the start. hypothesis that the faculty whose last names start with A get more rotation students than those who start with <laughs> letters farther along the alphabet because uh, they were listed. We had Just this big database of faculty. Out. Yeah, and they were uh, in alphabetical order. So, you know, Dan, we talked about this a little bit a minute ago, but in that 30-minute meeting, you're not going to get all the information you need to determine if this is a lab you want to join for your thesis. But I think what you're looking for in this meeting is that you hopefully walk away feeling more excited about the science and working there than you did from just reading the website. And so if you don't, if you feel less excited about working in that lab than you did when you read the website, that might be a sign to move along. And, you know, some things... I would say a really great first meeting would go beyond just talking about the science in general, but would be discussing different projects, specific projects you might work on if you were to come to the lab. So you would really have a little more detail about, okay, not just generally what was your lab study, but what might I be doing? Um, what questions might I be working on if I came there? I mean, even more amazing, and I've heard of this happening from time to time, would be if the advisor walks you around to see the place, maybe meet some people. I mean, that may not happen. So if it doesn't, you know, don't fret. But but that would even be an amazing first meeting. Yeah, that's great. I I think that specificity would be helpful just because working in an exciting lab where the big picture is exciting can be very different from getting assigned to or picking up a project that is sort of tangential or it's a tiny, tiny piece. And you didn't have the understanding going in that you were going to be researching this kind of micro topic because uh, you got excited about the big topic. So I think getting a little bit of detail about the specific projects would be awesome. 30 minutes is a stretch, though. I'd, I'd be interested to know if 
people have that experience if they go in, talk to the rotation advisor and automatically figure out what a good project would be. Yeah, and, and different advisors have different philosophies on rotation students and projects. You know, some always have three or four projects just in their mind waiting. And when they meet with you, right. they'll say, oh, well, here's three things going on in my lab. What sounds the best to you? I've heard of other faculty who I've seen other faculty who they take the approach of, yeah, I kind of like to wait and see what you're interested in. I'm going to let you sample out some different things and then we'll help you come up with a project together later. Um, and then, you know, others say, I want somebody to work on this. <laughs> it's not really a choice. Right, so, right. Uh, That's it, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, let's fast forward and say you have these meetings, you find a lab that the stuff sounds cool, the research sounds cool. So you start doing your rotation, you rinse and repeat, you do this with three different labs. Now you're at the end of your first year. How do you pick? I loved them all, Josh. That was the trouble. <laughs> Maybe you did. Um, and, you know, the truth is there likely won't be a perfect lab where it has the perfect advisor with the mentorship type, the exact right project you wanted to do, with the right lab culture and dynamic. There's probably going to be little things you liked best about lab A and then something else that was a little better in lab B and then maybe lab C was just terrible. I don't know. But They promised me the first author nature paper in my first year. I get weekends off and a sabbatical in my second year. That's what I wanted. <laughs> But you didn't find that exactly. so I sure didn't, Josh. Um, all right. So here's some things that I think you should look for. I think this gets to the heart of, of Megan's question. All right. The first thing we'll talk about is the science fit. So again, this was hopefully part of your process and even deciding where to apply in the first place. But hopefully, you know, you have now worked in this lab for six to 10 weeks. You know a lot more about the science than you did from when you were just reading the website. Um, and so actually, in some ways, it's probably, it could be a little less um, exciting than it was before. Because you know, Dan, a lot of scientific questions, when you read about them on the big picture scale, it's like, wow, that sounds so amazing. Then you get into the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty of actually <laughs> doing these small incremental experiments to to dig deep. And it's not quite as, uh, not quite as uh, alluring at that point. But, you know, science fit, I mean, this is, when you choose a lab, this is going to be the topic that you're going to be thinking about a lot for the next five years. Maybe not for the rest of your life, probably not for the rest of your life, but at least for the next five years, these are the papers you're going to have to read. These are the presentations you're going to have to give. This is the topic you're going to have to talk to people about many, many days out of your week. So I think it is important to think about, do I... Does the prospect of that sound interesting to me? Does becoming an expert on this topic something that excites me or something that fills me with dread? And I think that scientific fit is something you definitely want to weigh in your choice. Makes sense. But that, I think that the trouble is a lot of people stop there. They stop with the scientific fit. Uh, but wait, there's more. There is more. And I think many people stop there. And I think we are in agreement, Dan, that that would be a mistake. Because some other things you might want to consider are the lab environment or the culture fit of the lab. Every lab is almost like its own little small business um, where you have, you have a boss and you've got a number of employees and you've got a place that you come in and work every day. And those can be vastly different as you walk down any hallway and see all these labs. 
the the lab environment and culture might vary significantly. And I think there are a lot of different things you, you want to think about and you want to assess based on the experience you just had spending six to 10 weeks in these labs. You know, the first is the lab size. There are labs that may have three people. There are labs that may have 30 people. And those are going to be very different environments. So I think you want to pay attention to which of those did you feel more comfortable in? Did you like having lots of different people around that you could talk to? Or did you get overwhelmed feeling like you were just one little cog in a giant machine and you wanted more sort of personal interaction with the people in your group? Beyond just the size, though, I think labs have very different dynamics. So is a lab really this sort of fast-paced, cutting-edge environment? Or is it more of this slow and steady and incremental approach to research? Both are fine, uh, but both are very different experiences for someone working in the lab. I actually had a conversation very recently with a graduate student who was in more of the slow and steady, incremental-type lab, and this student thought the PI was very nice and very supportive and their relationship, their one-on-one relationship was okay. But the student realized that they were actually just getting bored. Like they wanted and needed a little more excitement from the people in their group with a lot of different things going on and more of that fast paced environment. And that's not for everyone, but for this student realizing like that was something they needed to, to really be happy and productive. That's great. Yeah. It is a, it's a personality trait, a lot of stimulation or not too much. And a lot of these things, Dan, again, there's not right answers and wrong answers, but there's really self-reflecting and seeing what's the best fit for you. And along those lines, too, there's the schedule. Maybe you're a morning person. Maybe you're an evening person. Does everybody show up at 7.30 a.m. or does everybody show up at 10.30 a.m.? You know, depending on what works for you, one might be a better fit uh, compared to the other. Are people social? Do they keep to themselves? We've received emails, Dan, from people who feel like they're just having trouble talking and connecting to other people in the lab during their day. Some of you may love that. You may be like, I would love to come into work and have no one talk to me all day. That sounds like a dream. But if that's not you, um, you you probably aren't going to thrive in an environment where people kind of sit at their desk and keep to themselves. But I think all of this sort of culminates in a really important question. In the lab environment, do you feel able to comfortably be yourself? Do you feel like you can walk into that environment and you just feel comfortable being there? I think that was something that I thought about, Dan, and ultimately choosing the lab that I chose for grad school. The first two rotations I did, they were okay. Like the science, in fact, one of them was a very well-known scientist. Um, The lab was good. The people I worked with were really exciting and, and really motivated. They were publishing these great journals but I didn't feel like I fit there. I felt like I was not really being authentically who I was. And then the first day I walked into my third rotation, it was almost easier to just be there, if that makes sense. I feel like I was just being myself and that was okay. And a lot of times we do our best work when we feel comfortable uh, being ourselves. I mean, that makes sense. It is, you're spend so many hours in the lab, in this environment over so many years that if you have to add on the stress of being a person that you're not or pretending to be a person you're not, I think that will break after a month. And you'll, I think the great thing about the rotation system, like you mentioned, Josh, is you can figure out a lot of these things in that 10 week period. You can figure out is the lab size. Are the people motivated? Are they excited? Are they kind of slow and steady? Um, What time do they come in? All of this stuff you can pick up just by being there for a few short weeks. And I think it'd be really hard to pick it up 
by doing a Zoom interview with a PI, right? It, it's just so hard to gather this lab environment culture fit stuff over a conversation. You have to be there. And I, I think that's the benefit of this process. And definitely. And one of the big things that you would have no ability to assess from a Zoom meeting are the other people who are going to be in your lab, the other people you're going to be working with day in and day out. Do you get along with them? Do you like spending time with them? You're going to spend a lot of time in that lab environment. And so do you work well with the people in the group? Now, I, I do have one major caveat for for that aspect of your decision. And that is keeping in mind that labs in academic environments are very transient. So people are coming and going all the time. Students, new rotation students are coming in. Other grad students are graduating. Postdocs are coming in and out. So over the course of a five-year PhD, the people who are in the lab at the end might be very different than the people who were there right when you joined. Was that true for you, Dan? Absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can remember different eras in the lab. Uh, the amount of drama would go up and down, <laughs> and uh, the people that I was close to changed as they either graduated or um, new people came in and left. I mean, it really is changing all the time. So whatever you think of your current lab environment, don't hold on to it too tightly. Yep. So we just went through a lot of different things you might think about surrounding the lab environment and the lab culture. I think it's worth noting these are all important things to assess how you feel, what you're looking for in all these categories. Um, I would recommend that you actually document in some way, almost keep a data log on yourself and how you're feeling about these things while you're going through the process or soon after you finish the rotation, because it can be easy to kind of forget or have revisionist history if you wait till the end of the spring semester and then you're trying to remember how did I feel back in September, like nine months ago when I was going through it? You might tend to overlook some things that were actually really important to you at the time. So if you're going through this now, I'd recommend, you know, keep a little log, keep a journal, keep a diary of, of how you're feeling day in and day out being in that lab. What do you like? What do you not like? So you'll remember later on. That is excellent advice. I definitely revise history as I thought <laughs> through the process and... You know, you, you remember, maybe you remember the good stuff. Maybe you only remember the bad stuff, but either way, that's incomplete. And so having a, a couple notes about the things that you liked and the things that you didn't like so that when you get to the end and you actually want to do this pro-con, you know, benefits analysis, you have real data in front of you. And that's, it's just hard to keep all of that together because your most recent experience will be the most clear in your mind. Definitely. All right, Dan, so we've talked about the science fit. We've talked about the lab environment fit. Uh, the last thing we need to talk about, which is obviously also very important, is the mentor fit. Um, how good of a fit are you with the thesis advisor themselves? And I think there are a few things to keep in mind. And, and the first is, and, and I want to say too, Dan, some of these lab culture items these flow out of the type of advisor you have. So in many times, the culture of a lab is directly or indirectly related to the style or the, um, the style or the priorities of the advisor themselves. But um, I think a couple of things you might think about is the advisor, are they early in their career? Are they brand new, just starting up their lab? Or maybe they're really established. They've been around a while because these likely will provide very different experiences in the frequency with which you interact with the advisor and what and the nature of those interactions. So for example, 
a brand new faculty member who's just starting their lab is likely going to be in the lab day in and day out, uh, maybe as much as you. They might actually be at the bench next to you doing experiments side by side. That might sound amazing to you, the fact that, wow, I actually get to be side by side with my PI doing experiments. They're the ones sort of helping train me. That might be really appealing to you or that might be that might sound horrible to you. <laughs> you might think, uh, that's a little too close. I'd rather have an advisor who's more established, who is kind of in their office. They're there to guide me sort of in the big picture level, but they're not there standing over my shoulder while I'm doing a Western blot. Yeah, that early career researcher, and, and I've worked in those labs, that is a postdoc that just got thrown into the deep end. And so... They are still continuing on some of the research maybe they were doing as a postdoc. They took some project away from their postdoc research. But now they've got all these budgets to deal with, and they set up a lab. And so there's a lot on their plate. Um, They're usually working a lot of hours, but they are very present. And so if you have a question, they're going to be right there versus that later career researcher that is maybe more focused on the communication side. They're they're focused on the papers, the talks, traveling – uh, it's a really different experience. And I was going to ask you, Josh, which one's better, but I think the answer is it depends. It does depend. I mean, you should keep in mind that a brand new faculty member, you may be their first graduate student. So where we might give the advice of, you know, besides your own experience doing a rotation, maybe there are other grad students who are more senior than you, who are in the lab, or students who recently left the lab because they graduated, you could ask them what their experiences were being a grad student in that lab. The new advisor, it's sort of uncharted waters, right? It's sort of a high risk, high reward, right? Maybe maybe they're going to be the best mentor ever, but you don't have, you may not have anyone else you can ask because the track record's not there. And for that later career researcher, I've seen cases where a student comes in and that thesis advisor or the the PI of the lab is not actually your mentor. The person who mentors you is a postdoc or it's somebody, it's some other more senior graduate student in the lab. So stepping into that lab environment, you may not actually have a mentor that is the PI. It may be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Totally true. But, you know, definitely don't want to give the impression that one is better or worse, but just knowing that they are different. Um, you know, I've also seen Dan early career, early career faculty, Sometimes, because they were recently trainees themselves, they might have more progressive views on professional development, on what careers are actually a success, on mental health in graduate school, because these are topics that increasingly were important during the time that they were in training. And a lot of times they are very motivated in becoming better mentors themselves and actually engaging that process of being a good mentor. So I don't think you should discount one way or the other, but just be aware that there are differences. Um, Beyond that, I think you might think about, is the advisor someone, just because they've been a, a, a faculty member for a long time, are they a big name in their field? Are they a quote unquote famous scientist? Are they in a field that happens to be really hot right now? Like maybe you ended up in a coronavirus research lab in early 2020, right? Because what might happen in those instances is you might have an advisor who is traveling a lot, who's giving talks. They're, they're away doing lots of, um, lots of other obligations outside the lab, and they may not be around very much. So depending on you, how independent you are, how much you feel like you're going to directly need from the advisor, um, you might have very different experiences. 
could be spending time swimming through their grant money in a large swimming pool. <laughs> that is true. That is the that is the other side like of that Scrooge coin. McDuck. That is the other side of that coin. But you know, related to that, I think you do want to know: is the advisor are they generally available to me when I need them to be? How available do you want them to be? Do you want an advisor who? is around all the time in the lab. This is like what we talked about. Or do you really want someone whose style is, I'm in my office if you need me, or I'm just an email away. I'm not going to come impress. I'm not going to come look over your shoulder, but I'm always here if you if you need me. Some people like that. Um, but I also have known students who they want advisors who are more hands-on, who are actively asking them, hey, how's it going? How's your project going? How's that experiment that I know you said you were working on last week versus the advisor who said, remind me what experiments you're doing? <laughs> you know, and both exist and both are, one's not better than the other, but one might be better for you. Yeah. It's kind of like hands-on versus a micromanager. Exactly. Sorry, hands-off. And you know, Dan, beyond some of these are, are really style are really style issues. Uh, but then I think beyond that, there's some really important aspects of advisors where we have either encountered ourselves or we've talked to students who've really had bad experiences because of advisors who maybe show some of these red flags. Is it the type of advisor who builds you up or tears you down? And I think one way you can assess that is when you go talk to when you go talk to your advisor and you have a meeting about your project or something else do you walk away feeling better about things or worse about things yeah i was going to say the exact same thing you could walk out dejected nervous your heart racing shamed your face is red or you could you could have walked in with a problem and walked out thinking oh actually this is this is manageable now i know what i need to do or i have the resources i need to get around this. I have hope and optimism about this thing that was difficult. And and you know it as you walk out. Do you feel nervous going in because you know something bad's going to happen? Or do you think to yourself, oh, I ran into a problem and I know who to turn to. The PI is going to really help me with this. Uh, noting that about your experience and not discounting it, not saying to yourself, well, it might get better when I join the lab and my project is slightly different. It won't. So don't believe that. Yeah, I think that's generally good advice for entering into any type of relationship <laughs> is you shouldn't have the mindset of, well, I know this seems like a big red flag and bad, but it'll probably get better. It never gets better. It never gets better. <laughs> but I think that's really important, Dan. I had, you know, my thesis advisor was not perfect, but one thing that I, I certainly remember about him is there were many times throughout, and there will be times in grad school where you feel completely dejected and like a total failure. And I can remember these times, we would actually joke about it in my lab, that like, well, time to go have a conversation with Tom, right? And you would go in his office, and I don't even remember what he said or what he did, but you would walk out feeling better about yourself and feeling better about it. And I think that is a true mark of a good mentor. It's just someone who makes you feel better about yourself and your ability you can see a path out of whatever the problem is as opposed to being beaten down by that problem. I mean, this is related, Josh, but you're going to experience conflict in the lab. And I think a lot of times the the advisor gets involved in that. And how do they deal with that conflict? Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's worth noting that over the course of a rotation of six weeks to eight weeks, 
hopefully <laughs> you won't experience any serious lab conflict going on. You may not get a chance to observe how the advisor manages conflict within their group. But I think this is, again, something that you can ask. I think this is a good question to ask other people who have been in the lab for longer, or maybe if you have access to people who recently left the lab or graduated from the lab, asking, like, can you remember a time there was conflict in the lab and how, the, how did the PI react and respond to that? Because um, that might give you a lot of really useful information for when that inevitably occurs while you're there. Screaming, passive aggression, <laughs> uh, throwing students out the window, all of these things are possible. Or even worse and common, sticking their head in the sand. Right. Yeah, fair point. And then I think a really practical standpoint is just during the process of of scheduling your rotation and working with them as a rotation student, how quickly do they get back to you? If you ask them a question, maybe you need them to edit something for you. Do they turn it around pretty quickly or do weeks go by and you have to keep reminding them? Because I think that can be foreshadowing into what it's going to be like when you're trying to write a paper with them. You're going to try to get your thesis edited. These really important things that you're going to need to move on with your career. Do you have confidence that your advisor is going to be going to be an efficient partner in helping you do the things you need to do to graduate? I think that can be important. Yeah, if I had one Bitcoin for every email we've gotten about, <laughs> I have this paper that I've written, and if my PI would just review it, we could turn it in. Like it just it happens so often. I can't graduate because they won't look at my thesis. It's it's constant. Yeah, you definitely want to avoid that. And I think the last thing here I want to say is I think it can be really important during your rotation early on to have a conversation with each advisor about your career aspirations. And you may not completely know what you want to do after grad school. That's fine. But I think talking through some of the things you think you might want to do, that conversation can be really illuminating um, when choosing an advisor. Do you have, you know, do you have a PI who really engages and listens to you as you're talking through that? Maybe they talk about, oh, you know, you mentioned you're interested in industry. Here's some resources on campus that I know about where maybe you could explore that further. Or here's a person I know that, here's a grad student who used to be in the lab who went on that path, I'll connect you. Somebody who you can see is listening to you and helping you get where you want to go versus an advisor who maybe has a certain idea for where they would like for you to go and they shut down any conversations about careers or things you might want to do outside of their framework. I think that's something you definitely want to avoid that will cause you a lot of problems down the road. Yeah, and you may pick that up subtly. Uh, you're sitting around the lunch table, and the PI brings up a former student who went to industry, and they're like, oh, threw his career away or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes it comes out in side, side conversations, but it'll give you this warning sign that they're not going to be supportive of whatever career it is you've chosen. So pay attention. Yeah, and you want to find that out earlier rather than later. And I think all this just just really can be wrapped up in thinking about your advisor as someone who's could be a mentor versus just your boss. And I've heard it described this way, Dan, that a boss is just someone who thinks about what their employees can do for them to help them in their own advancement and career versus a mentor who is thinking about the people in their group and how they can help them get where they want to go. And I think it's that ladder that you're really looking for here. All right. So we've talked about a lot of different things here. We've talked about assessing your mentor, assessing the lab environment, assessing the science. 
So you may feel overwhelmed because that was a lot of information. You might think, okay, well, I have a giant spreadsheet and I have a diary where I kept all this information. How do I prioritize and organize this? My advice is that there actually is a hierarchy of importance here. And this is my opinion, and Dan will see if you agree, but I think the mentor fit is the most important, followed closely by the lab environment fit. And then the science fit, to me, is a distant third. And I'm putting science at the bottom, not because it is unimportant, because again, you're there to do science. But remember, the goal of grad school is to learn to be a scientist and learn to think scientifically to solve problems and grow more independent in that process. Very few people actually do what they did in grad school forever for their career. But how you feel about science can be extremely impacted by a bad lab environment or a bad mentor fit. I wanted to argue with you, Josh, but the proof is in the experience. If you love immunology or whatever your particular science is, and you have a bad mentor, I promise you, you will hate it. (laughs) You will hate the project. You will hate the science. You will hate research itself. You may go become an artist somewhere just because you hate science so much because that mentor was bad. Uh, Reverse that. A great mentor may help you to fall in love with a topic that you didn't know you liked. So I think you've got them in the right order, Josh. And that mentor fit is just the most important thing. Yeah, you really can't unlink it. You can't unlink the way academic science is structured. You can't unlink your experience with the science and that professional relationship with the advisor because they're so intertwined. Yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to go overboard because the reality is nobody is in that that black and white extreme situation. There are mediocre mentors and mediocre science and mediocre lab environments and everybody's in some degree of good on this and bad on that. So don't get so nervous about choosing the exact right mentor and there's only one in the whole world. And if you don't find that person and they're not perfect in every way, you're not going to love science. The reality is it's a spectrum. And the goal is just to not walk in without thinking through the implications of these things. The danger is you walk in as a bright-eyed graduate first year and you say, I just love this science. Uh, Yeah, there's all these red flags that I've ignored. That's where you get into trouble. Um, just paying a little bit of attention up front, I think you can avoid a lot of problems down the road. You're not going to find the perfect person, but you're going to get a great experience by finding somebody who's pretty good. Well said, Dan, and absolutely true. And I think it's worth mentioning at the end that maybe you're listening to this and you're not a first-year graduate student. You're not doing your rotations. You've already made your choice and and you're living with it, I guess you could say. You're already suffering. <laughs> and, and maybe you're at a point in your career where you you recognize that maybe you did pick wrong. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, you know what? This lab environment is not working for me. I feel like this is an environment I've learned about myself over the last couple of years that I would probably be more likely to thrive in this other type of environment or this other type of mentor. It is possible you can always change advisors. It's not just like, oh, well, I had my chance and I messed up, so now there's no hope for me. Um, I acknowledge that I think academia and many PhD programs make it very obscure and difficult to know the process of changing advisors, but that's definitely something you can do. And I've known a number of people, whether it's colleagues we were going through the process or students that I've advised over the last several years, who have made that decision to change advisors. And I'm pretty confident, Dan, as I'm thinking about it, 
I can't think of any of them where that was the wrong decision and all of them ended up in a better space um, where actually they ended up in a, in a, in a situation where they were then able to finish their degree and their feet and able to persist in science as a career because they made that change and they recognized that it was a bad situation they were in and, and moved to a better one. Yeah, that's great. It is always possible. We've, we've talked about this in previous episodes. I'm having trouble finding, uh, specific ones, although episode 51, should I change labs or quit grad school comes to mind. So dig through the archive. We've definitely covered this topic. All right. Well, Megan, thanks for the question. And I hope you got something out of this deep dive into, into how to choose a lab. I hope this gives you some, uh, some insight and information, some things for you to consider as you're going through the process. Certainly we would love to hear from people if they are going through this process now, things they are considering, ways they're approaching this important decision, or from grad students farther along, what did you think about? What things were important to you? What have you recognized you didn't prioritize that you should have prioritized? I think this is one of those evergreen topics, Dan, that is really critical and always going to be important for graduate students. So we'd love to hear anyone out there, if you have advice for things we missed or things that are different for you, certainly write in and let us know. That is true. And people who want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hellophd.com. Uh, we are on Twitter at hellophd. If you like us, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback. That's really important to us. If you want to support us, you can click the Become a Patron button on hellophd.com or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. And we'd appreciate the Czech Pilsner money. We do not want any money for American Pilsners. That I'm very firm on. And don't send checks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what we do with them. Only cash or CODs. Remember those? I don't remember what that is. Oh, yeah, no, said that. no COD. Yeah. No cash on delivery, yeah. Yeah. All right, Dan. Well, this was fun, as always. Yeah, it was, Josh. I really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> Let's do it again sometime. Maybe in two weeks. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.